We want everybody to follow along with the Bible. The guys have some then, so if you need one, get their attention. We'll get a Bible to you that is marked to Ephesians 4, so you just open it to where that bookmark is, and you'll be all set. The book of Ephesians is our continuation of our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. We resumed that series last Sunday, and now we'll continue over the next few months to complete the book. We had some time off between the end of chapter 3 and now the beginning of chapter 4. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Major League Baseball season hit its midway point, and that means, for any of you who follow baseball, the annual All-Star Game was played. Every year at the midpoint of the season, players who've been selected by the votes of fans go to a predetermined stadium and they represent their respective teams as the two leagues of Major League Baseball, the American League, the National League, play against each other. Now, when I was a kid, that was a pretty big deal because players were honored to have been chosen and they actually played the game to win. I remember in 1972, when I was 10, I watched Pete Rose barrel around third base, and there was a throw coming into home plate, and the ball arrived before he did, and the catcher was standing waiting for him, blocking the plate, and Pete Rose plowed into the catcher with such force that he tumbled over, the ball came loose, and Pete Rose was safe at home. By the way, uh, the catcher who was knocked over and allowed Rose to score. His name was a fellow named Ray Fossey. He was never the same after that. He went on to have a mediocre career. These guys cared about a game that had no bearing on the standings or the pennant race or their own statistics. And when they were asked why they cared about it then, they would say things like, well, you know, you're representing your team, and you're representing your teammates and your city and your owner. And to be able to wear the uniform to put on the old English D and represent the Tigers, for instance, was incentive enough to care and to play like you cared. You were representing something more than yourself. Now, I'm more of a hockey fan than a baseball fan. And the National Hockey League, the whole sermon's not about sports, honest. <laughs> but the National Hockey League originally had six teams. They now have just over 30. And I was talking to an old-timer once who was a big hockey fan, and he was telling me that when they had the original six teams and a team would go to an opposing uh, rink to, to play, that when they went on the road, they would only take one goalie with them, not two or three like they do, do today. And I said, well, what happened if your goalie got hurt? The home team supplied a goalie for you. And I, you know, I said, don't we have a conflict of interest here? <laughs> Won't this goalie be letting, letting in goals? And he said, are you kidding? He's not making any money. He's simply playing for the integrity of the game, and he's going to be thrilled to stop shots coming at him from his teammates. Well, times have changed quite a bit. The baseball all-star game played a few weeks ago was missing many of the players who were selected by the fans. Because over the last several years, it's become an annual ritual for guys to get sick or injured so they can't go. 
And those who do go aren't going to risk injury to themselves or somebody else. The truth of the matter is, they don't care about it that much. And as a result, the popularity of the All-Star Game has plummeted. You see, it's no longer that you're representing the team and the game and your teammates and your owner. You're now representing yourself and looking out for number one. And the Bible constantly calls us to evaluate who it is we're representing. We need to be looking out for number one, but we need to make sure we determine correctly who number one is. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians tells us that God has created the church to represent him before the rulers and the authorities of the world. Chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us that. And we're told that God has chosen us and loved us and redeemed us to, according to chapter 1 and verse 6 and chapter 1 and verse 14, he's done all of that for us so that we might be to, quote, the praise of his glory. Now God's glory is his character. God's glory is what he is like. And it's saying then that God has done all of this for us if we've come to him through Jesus Christ so that we can display his character to an onlooking world. And chapter 4 begins three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6 now, of instruction on how to do that. How to represent God. How to reflect God's character. How to live, according to chapter 4 and verse 1, lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received. Chapter 4 tells us that we do that. That we live lives that are worthy, that are consistent with the calling that we've received. We do that in two ways. We reflect God's character to an onlooking world and thus live consistent, worthy of that calling in two ways. The first is that we show unity amongst ourselves. Now we're going to see how showing unity amongst ourselves reflects God's character because he has unity among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the first thing we do, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is we show unity among ourselves. And then the second thing we do is we demonstrate purity in our lives. And that extends from chapter 4 and verse 17 to chapter 5 and verse 21. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at those two things. How we reflect God's character in our unity and in our purity. This is done, particularly this demonstration of unity, is done not as individuals, not as free agents, not as independent contractors, but in the church which he has created according to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, God has created the church with Jew and Gentile, calling people of disparate backgrounds to be on the same team, his body, the church, and for us together to display a unity among ourselves that reflects the unity of God, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now we saw last week, in the outline that's inserted in your program, and I encourage you to take a look at that, we only covered the first of the four points on that outline last week. 
And that's why we have that first one filled in for you. It says Christian living follows Christian identity. And we reviewed our identity in Christ by reviewing all that is said about us and what God has done for us in chapters 1 through 3. Now today we're going to hopefully finish the outline. And in that second point, I say Christian unity flows from Christian character. Christian unity flows from Christian character. Notice chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now here's how. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Christian unity that reflects the unity of God flows from Christian character. That character begins with humility. In his helpful little book by the title, Humility, C.J. Mahaney cites a best-selling book from 2001 called From Good to Great. Some of you in the business world have perhaps heard of that book, made a big splash, all the business seminars and the business people were big on Jim Collins' best-selling book, Good to Great. And it was all about the qualities, the characteristics of companies that were good companies, but they went from being just good to becoming great companies. And the book documented that there are certain qualities of the leaders who would move their companies to that greatness. Now, the first of those qualities is probably not a surprise to any of us. Those leaders who move those companies from good to great are driven people. They're willing to endure anything to make their company a success. But the second trait of those leaders and, and what they all had in common was something that Collins' researchers for that book hadn't expected to find, and it may surprise you as it surprised me. These driven leaders were all self-effacing and modest. They consistently pointed to the contribution of others, and they didn't like drawing attention to themselves. The good to great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes, Collins writes in his book. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or to become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people, quietly producing extraordinary results. And so here you have an open acknowledgement of humility's value from the secular world. It's a recognition that it goes far in building respect for those who have it and in inspiring trust and confidence from people around those who have it. Humility sometimes attracts the world's notice. But here's something that's more astonishing. Humility always gets God's attention. In your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, Isaiah says this. God says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now the reason that God had to remind those to whom that was written, that these are the kind of people that my attention is on. It is people who are, who are humble. These are the people that I will look to. The reason they had to be reminded is because those people to whom that was written are people like you and me, 
who've been given all of these vast privileges that have been recounted in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. That we've been loved and chosen and redeemed and God is at work in our lives and it would be very easy for us like they did to say, aren't we special? And God says, no, the, the people to whom I look are the humble and the contrite in spirit. And this passage points to an altogether different motivation and a different purpose for humility than you're ever going to find in the secular pages of a business manual. Here we find motivation and purpose that's rooted in this amazing fact that God's gaze is on the, the humble. Humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. And so contrary to popular and false belief, it is not God helps those who help themselves. It's God helps those who are humble before him. Now after all that's been said in chapters 1 through 3, we have to be reminded of that. He loved me. He's chosen me. He's adopted me. He's redeemed me. He's changing me. But friends, I want you to notice from chapters 1 through 3 how thoroughly God-centered all of that activity is. It is He who loves me and you. It is He who has chosen me and you. It is He who has adopted us. It is He who has redeemed us. He who is changing us. And all of this is to be to the praise of whose glory? His glory. And so with all of these privileges, it would be easy to become conceited. Look at me, loved and chosen, adopted, set apart and special. It's precisely what the Israelites did. And why Isaiah, God through Isaiah, had to remind them. Consider this. What I am, what you are, also indicates what we are not. Here's what I mean. I'm the son of Azzy and Adi Brown. Well, that means by its very definition that I am not the son of Joe and Mary Smith. And as God tells us all of these things that we are, it also indicates to us all these things that we are not. And we need to be reminded not just of what we are, but what we're not. You see, I am chosen which means I am not the chooser. And I'm redeemed, which means I am not the redeemer. And I'm adopted, but that means I am not the adopter. I am, and you are, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, according to chapter 2 and verse 10 of Ephesians. But that means I'm not the creator. And so as I look at chapters 1 through 3 and all these marvelous things that I am, I should still come away from that absolutely humbled. Because this has all been done for me by someone greater than me. To put it another way, humility should come naturally to us. <laughs> it should. It doesn't. But humility should come naturally to us. I mean, the truth is, none of us can really explain how we got here. You know, somebody, somebody, had to, somebody had to put it here to get it started. Whatever theory you want to subscribe to, you're here, and you've got to explain how that happened. And all of these things that have happened to you, the Bible says, by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. That's why the Bible says, let him who boasts. Boast in who? Boast in the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself was one who was, was humble. The Bible says that of Jesus, Jesus said of himself actually, I am gentle and humble in heart. Now how is it that Jesus, God, having come as man, how can he have this humility? I should have it naturally. You should have it naturally. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for someone else. We wouldn't have what we have, be able to do what we do if it were not for someone else. But what about you? What about God? How can he be humble? For Jesus, it's not being humble by nature because of his station in life. He's God. But for Jesus, his humility is chosen. He condescends for the sake of others. That's why the Bible says, though he were rich, for your sakes, he became poor. Winston Churchill was the master of the political put-down. And he said of one of his political opponents, he said, you know, he's a modest little man who has much to be modest about. And I'm telling you that you and I have much to be humble about. I have much to be humble about. I try to act like I know what's going on. I try to act like I know what I'm talking about. And I want you to think that most of the time. But then there's these times in my life where I'm reminded of what an idiot I really am. Let me share a couple of those with you. Unless you all say, no, we already know you're an idiot. Move on to that. <laughs> One time when I was, uh, I was probably about 20, I was visiting a friend, stayed at this friend's house for about four or five hours until about uh, 12, 12.30 or so, 12.30 a.m. When I'd gotten to the house, uh, I pulled into the driveway as I normally do. The driveway's just on a little bit of an incline. When I went in, it wasn't snowing or, or anything, but it was wintertime. Well, by the time I came out, there had been a dusting of snow, perhaps an accumulation of a, about an inch. And I jumped in my car, and I uh, put it in reverse, and I rolled back, and then put it in drive, and I hit the gas, and I wasn't moving anywhere. And I thought, it didn't snow enough for me to be stuck. There wasn't that much ice out here, but I can't move. And so I put it in park, and I get out, and I look to see where my back tires are, and it doesn't look to be anything, obviously, that's keeping me from moving forward. So I get back in, and I put it in drive, and I gun it some more, and I'm just not going anywhere. And the car pulls up behind me, and it waits for a while, and now I'm getting a little, I'm embarrassed, I can't move anywhere, I don't know. Another car pulls behind that guy after a while, they get out, and they're saying, do you need a, do you need a push? So they start pushing, and they're pushing, and it'll move a few inches, but still, I'm just grinding away. And while this is happening, I'm trying to figure it all out, I've got my window down, I'm talking to these guys, they say, gun it, we're going to push, and we're trying, and nothing's happening. And then I remember while I'm sitting there, when I was at work earlier in the day, someone at work had said to me, you know, whenever I'm on any sort of an incline, even in a driveway, I, I put my emergency brake on. And I never put my emergency brake on. But when I pulled in five hours earlier there, that dawned on me and I did. 
And now here, after being out here 15 minutes and people trying to push me, I remember the emergency brake is on. Now I'm too proud to admit that to these people I don't know. I'm now telling it to 200 people I do know. <laughs> so now what do I do? I've got the window down. I have to get out of this somehow. And you know, it's got a little release. And when it releases, it makes a loud noise. And so I'm talking to these guys, and I pull the thing, and it's the same time I pull the thing, I cough really loud. <laughs> and my car takes off. And the people who were pushing fall. And I wave. Now, I'll share one more. And this is the last time you're ever going to hear of my idiocy. There's plenty more that could be shared. But I like to drink coffee. I bought a coffee on the way here today. And so I'll often stop at a place when I'm out, I'll get a coffee. My wife and I had been married for a year or two. And I had been stopping and getting coffees. And every time I would get a coffee, I was really annoyed when I would pull the tab up. When I would drink it, this tab is hitting me in the face. And so I would take the lid as soon as I got it, and I would tear the tab off. And sometimes it didn't tear really easily, and so I end up kind of sort of mangling the, the lid. And my dear wife says to me one time, after about a year or two of this, she says to me in the car, why do you mangle the lid? And I said, because I don't like the little thing hitting my face when I drink. She said, well, they don't, they, you don't have to do that. There's a little tab thing that keeps that out of your face. And I look at her and I say, well, they don't all have that. <laughs> and she says, well, most of them do. It turns out all of them do. Now, I expect I'm not going to get any smug comments from all of you about any of this, because you've got your own stories as well. I tell you all that, friends, for this reason. I have great reason to be humble. And you have great reason to be humble and lowly as well. But the fact is, I'm still prideful. And so are you. And what do we do, what can we do to weaken pride and to cultivate humility? I mentioned C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility. It's a little book that I recommend to you. He has a few things that we can do that I'd like to share to you to weaken pride and to cultivate humility in our lives. Let me share those with you. The first one is this. We need to, in our interaction with other people, identify evidences of grace in their lives. If we will consistently do that, it will keep us from the all-too-common malady that many of us suffer from, which is to criticize others. So they don't do it right. They ought to fill in the blank. The ubiquitous they. Who are they? Just people other than me. Who aren't as smart as me. And so I criticize them. And the assumption is I can do it better. But rather than cutting others down, due to our inflated view of ourselves, we should build them up. And one way to do that is to consistently identify evidences of grace in their lives. You say, but I just know some people, there aren't any evidences of grace in their life. You're not looking very hard, generally. How do I know that? 
I'm going to give you an example of what Paul, one of the characters in the Bible, did in order to do the very thing that Mahaney suggests we do, identify evidences of grace. One of the churches that he, was, he worked with and wrote letters to that are contained in your Bible was a church in a city called Corinth. There are two letters in your Bible that he wrote to them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If you were to read that first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, just read the 16 chapters of that, you would see this. Those people were a mess, an absolute mess. Some of you have read it. You know what it says. They had divisions among them. They argued about petty sorts of things. They each choose their, chose their own leader that they liked the best, the best. And some said, I'm of Paul. And some said, I'm of Peter. And some said, I'm of Apollos. There were factions and divisions. They tolerated very heinous sin in their midst. They went to court against one another. They were so unloving that they were willing to violate the conscience of others within the church by what they chose to do. Paul corrects them on that. They were so selfish that when they would go to the Lord's table, communion, the observance of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, they would rush to the table to be first to get the meal. They used to have whole meals when they observed the Lord's table. Some of them even got drunk at the Lord's table. They misused gifts, spiritual gifts, Three chapters of that letter are written to correct them. Listen, I'm not exaggerating when I say the Corinthians were a mess. And yet this is how Paul starts that first letter that he wrote to them. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Imagine. Looking for evidences of grace in the lives of others, even people who at least at the moment don't have much to show for it. But he knew them because he founded that church. He went to that city, he preached the gospel, and people came to Christ. And he knew what he writes elsewhere. That he who has begun a good work in you is faithful and he will complete it. And so being convinced that a good work in the gospel had been begun, he was now confident that it would be finished. And one commentator says this then about Paul's view of that Corinthian church. He looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ Jesus before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. That disciplined statement of faith is rarely made in local churches. The warts, and, the warts are examined and lamented, but often there's no vision of what God has already done in Christ. Do you all hear that? It's easy to look and see the problems with people and forget the work that God has already done in their lives. And so where do I look? Where do you look for these evidences of grace? Well, here are a couple suggestions. The Bible gives us a list of the fruits of the Spirit. You're familiar with those, right? It gives us nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Look for evidences of, of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of those around you, those in our, in our church. Another category would be look for the gifts of the Spirit. 
operative in the lives of those around you. And if we can see some indication of God's work, then thank Him and be encouraged. I counsel with folks a lot. And I will admit to you that it is discouraging from time to time to see the lack of change, the lack of cooperation that often happens with folks that you're trying to help. And when I am in that discouraged period, and I'm wondering what's going on, I do my best to do what we're saying here. What has God already done in this person's life? And even though it's not happening as it should now, I'm looking for evidence that the Holy Spirit is there. And if the Holy Spirit is indeed there, then He will complete His work in that individual. I encourage you, friends, try this at home. I ask you, spouses, are you more aware of evidences of grace in the life of your wife or husband? Or are you more aware of their need for change? And which do you remind them of most? And what about in your children? In your own home, how do you see the opinion of others, whether your children or your spouse? Do you talk down to your spouse or other family members in order to elevate yourself? When you cut down, right friends, when we cut down, we are always elevating ourselves. And the motivation for elevating myself is always pride, the opposite of humility. And if we encourage regularly the correction that must come from time to time in relationships, that correction will be all the more effective. Try this at home. But try this in our church as well. If everybody knew your heart of hearts and the way you use your tongue and the way you talk about others, if we all knew that, and we don't, thank the Lord. But would you be seen as just another fault finder? Or would you be known as someone who actively calls attention to evidences of God's gracious work in the lives of those who comprise this church? You see, humility doesn't care whether or not my kids got snubbed or whether so-and-so is talking to so-and-so more than they're talking to me and my kid didn't get invited. Humility doesn't care about that stuff, does it? But our pride does. So identify evidences of grace in others. Secondly, encourage and serve others each and every day. And as you encourage others, your words are absolutely key. When we get further along in chapter 4, we get to verse 29. Chapter 4 and verse 29 gives us a very solemn warning with regard to how we use our words. And the things that we say, we are told there are only those things that are for the building up to minister grace to those who hear. Now, because the rest of the chapter has a lot to say about words, I'm not going to say much about it now. But understand this, focusing on others, in our edifying words, that is, words that build up, and in our actions, that by its very nature takes the focus off of ourselves, and our reason for a lack of humility is at its heart, correct? Because we pridefully are focused on who? 
on ourselves. And so when I use my words and my actions to serve others, it takes the focus off of me, which is in itself an act of humility, because it recognizes that it's not about me. And thirdly, do this. If you're going to cultivate humility and destroy pride in your life, then invite and pursue correction. One author tells the story of a fellow in a restaurant. He's eating breakfast. He's having a bagel. He is well-dressed. He has an Armani suit on. He has very shiny wing-tipped shoes. He has a Rolex watch. He's reading some papers as he has his, has his bagel. And he's nervously looking at his watch. It's clear that he has an important meeting to go to. He's dressed for it, and he's preparing for it. And then he gets up to leave his breakfast, to go apparently to his meeting. But when he gets up, this fellow who is well-groomed, including a well-groomed mustache, has a glob of cream cheese on his mustache. I wonder if that guy would appreciate somebody telling him that before he goes into that meeting. You see, friends, we are often blind to what we need. And author Paul Tripp says this, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you from time to time to hold the mirror of God's Word in front of me. And so we need, if we are going to cultivate humility, to be people who invite and pursue correction. The Bible says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you all see that God himself says, that we are to help each other in this process. See to it, brothers, that none of you does this. Encourage one another. Paul Tripp goes on to say, spiritual insight is the product of community. Since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we all have pockets of spiritual blindness. The Bible teaches that we can be spiritually blind and yet think that we can see quite well. And so let me ask you, friends, do others find it easy to correct you? Do you have people close enough to you and who have permission to tell you you've got cream cheese on your mustache? That there's something you don't see? Are you even close enough to anybody? Cultivating relationships in the body where that kind of thing could ever happen. I'll give you one indication. I could give you a bunch. These all apply to me as well. But one indication, you don't have this humility. If you talk all the time, I mean, if you know the way the world works for everything, then you probably don't have this humility. And I don't mean to be unkind, but friends, in order for us to be helped by others, we got to shut up long enough. to allow somebody else to instruct us. 
And so verse 2 says, be completely humble and be gentle. The word for gentleness is a word that's translated meekness elsewhere in your New Testament. It's a word that means this, power under control. Power under control. It's used of domesticated animals. That is, animals that are powerful and can be wild and unruly and out of control, but that power is under control. So it is not weakness. Meekness is power, but power that is used for the benefit of others. And these go together. Humility and gentleness. I can act with humility because I'm meek and gentle. And so Jesus said, I am gentle, and I am humble in heart. I've heard people say, perhaps you've said this of yourself, you know, I'm just opinionated, I just have to speak my mind. No, you don't. You see, meekness is power under control, including our words. And I don't have to say everything that's on my mind. No, everyone's not entitled to your opinion. And then verse 2 goes on to say, Be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And just like humility and meekness go together, patience and bearing with or forbearance, they go together as well. I can bear with you because I'm patient. This internal quality of patience is seen when I bear with you, despite the fact that we are all difficult to bear with from time to time. This word patience in verse 2 is literally we are to be long-tempered as opposed to being short-tempered. I can bear with you because, not because you're always lovable, but because I trust God's work in you. Now I want you to note these things about those qualities of humility and meekness and patience and forbearance. None of these are self-generated. Gentleness that's seen in humility is not something you manufacture. It's not natural to us. It comes from God. Gentleness and patience, in fact, are fruits of the Spirit. They come from God. And so Christian unity comes from Christian character. Look at your outline, if you would. But Christian unity also models divine unity. If you look at verses 4 through 6, here's what you'll find there. In verse 4, notice, you find God the Spirit. You see that? In verse 5, notice, one Lord. This one Lord is, is Christ. So you find in verse 4, God the Spirit. In verse 5, God the Son. And in verse 6, one God and Father of all, God the Father. This unity that we are to have with one another as we glorify God and reflect His character in His church formed for that very purpose is modeled after the unity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Of that, the Bible says elsewhere, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. And then of Christ, verse 5 says, There is one Lord and one faith, and one baptism. And of this one Lord, the Bible says elsewhere, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
Now in verse 5 it says one Lord and one faith and one baptism. When it says one baptism, some of you may say, you know, is that when I was baptized in water? Is that when I received this baptism of the Spirit when I came to Christ? And the truth is, that's not the point that Paul is making. In fact, one commentator says this, regarding the one baptism, it's beside the point to ask if it's baptism in water or baptism in the Spirit. The point is it's Christian baptism. It's baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the key word in verse number 5 is one. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. Around which we are to be unified. There is this one hope that's spoken of in verse 4, which is the return of Jesus that Titus speaks of in chapter 2. You have the Spirit and you have the Son, and in verse 6, you have God the Father. One God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. Now, I said last week that there's never been a time when God was lonely. He didn't create us because He was lonely. He created us to extend His glory in His universe. There has always been the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, always. So God didn't create us because he was lonely. And now we are to emulate in our relationships the unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always had among themselves. Our unity is rooted in the Holy Trinity. It means, friends, our unity is eternal and unbreakable. One commentator said the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Friends, do you see what's at stake in our unity? We are to be reflecting the unity of God. And this is why God takes divisiveness so seriously. It introduces a foreign and destructive element into the body. If unity is unbreakable, then how is it that churches split? The answer is sin introduced to the church by people who are not part of the body. Okay? Being a member of a church does not mean you're part of the body of Christ. That's sobering, isn't it? The best a church can do is receive the profession of faith that an individual gives you. And in keeping with what we said, look for evidences of grace. But friends, God takes very, very, very seriously any attempt to harm his church and divide his church. And those who would continually not heed those warnings from God give evidence that they are in the church but not part of the body of Christ. And either they will be excised from the body or they will harm that body. You say, really, the Bible says that? Titus chapter 2, excuse me, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, warn 
a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and self-condemned. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Keep away from them. The toxicity of division must be excised from the church. God says. I'm not talking about disagreement. I already told you I'm an idiot. You already knew that. I can be, I have been, I will be wrong about stuff. I need people to correct me. I need people to disagree with me. I'm not talking about disagreement. Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas disagreed and went their separate ways. Disagreement is not sin. Certainly disagreement with me is not sin. But a divisive person is intent on taking his disagreement to the next level. He acts on his lack of love for Christ and Christ's people by, among other things, talking down regularly, using his tongue to belittle and berate others in the church. I'm asking you, friends, have you ever been around somebody toxic like that? And every time you're with them, somehow it comes around to their complaint. Somehow the topic comes around to their concerns and their disagreements. It's not enough to have your say. Not satisfied until I have my way. A divisive person has either got to have his way or he elevates the disagreement to the status of sin. That is, if you're doing something different than he would, there must be some sinister motive on your part. And friends, do you see the extreme pride in all of this? The only way for you to disagree with me is for there to be something wrong with you. It's just a matter of me uncovering it all, and believe me, I will, say they. Or my opinion is so important that I have to regularly bring up my issues with whoever about whatever because the world simply cannot lose my input. And Christian humility would solve all of that. And an awareness of the, our mission to display Christ and to model the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit would solve all of this. Lastly and quickly, in your outline, Christian unity results from Christian obedience. Verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I will simply say this and we are done. That's a command in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. I have said that. Quoted that verse. Every year when we've had our celebration dinner. Some of you may remember that. Oh, friends, God has been good to us. As we celebrate His goodness to us, let us remember, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Satan hates this church. Satan would love to divide this church. It's a command of Almighty God. Do this. See it as a crime against God 
for anyone to say anything designed to tear down those who belong to Jesus. And if you see it as the crime that it is, then make a citizen's arrest when it happens. That's making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We do that. We'll bring glory to God by reflecting His character. That's what He's called us to. To show His love to one another. To show the unity the Father, Son, and Spirit have with one another. Our unity is unbreakable within the body of Christ. Let us make sure that all of us who are in the church are also part of the body of Christ. Now, how can you be part of the body of Christ? Let's come to Christ. Humbly recognize who you are, who I am, a sinner. And recognize that he has done what's necessary to reconcile you to the God from whom we all come into this world separated. Repent. Lord, I want to follow you. If you are in the body of Christ, but you've been sinning in that way, and I don't know of anyone here who's been doing that, by the way. When the pastor pounds the music stand, you might think I do. I don't know of anyone in this room doing that. I don't. I don't want it to happen. I know how serious it is. I've seen it in other places. I've seen its devastation. If that's been happening, repent. Lord, I want to follow you. If you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, acknowledge Right now, when we bow, Lord, I'm a sinner. Just say from your heart to God, no magic formula, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sin. I want to follow you with my life. I give myself to you. He will give you his spirit and begin his work of change in you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege that I do not deserve and we do not deserve to be your children and to represent you in your world. Lord, you allow us to reflect your character back to you and to an onlooking world. And an awesome privilege, but also responsibility it is. Help us, Lord, to give it the seriousness that it deserves. Help us to see that our words, our actions, our attitudes are to reflect the actions, the words, the attitudes that would be communicated between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their eternal and perfect unity. Help us to reflect that in our homes, in our church as well. As a result, may we glorify you. Show your character. May that unity then make us the solid body that you have designed us to be, upon which we build to carry your fame abroad. I pray for any who have come into this room who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that right now they might be praying to you to humbly acknowledge their own sin and their need of the Savior. And we believe your promise that he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.